Welcome to episode 85 of the Gamer Node Show podcast. I'm your host, Eddie Inzotto, and I'm here to talk about PAX Unplugged. I went this year, I had a great time, and I, uh, I just wanted to talk about some of the games that I got in while I was there. So, so PAX Unplugged is in its second year, and it happens in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, which is fairly close to where I live in Brooklyn, New York. And um, I drove down, got myself an Airbnb with a bunch of friends from my gaming group, from one of my gaming groups in the city, and I just kind of enjoyed the show. I, my goal was to play as much as I could and, you know, peruse some of the booths, but I was really interested in getting some games played, and I think I succeeded in doing that. So I guess, um, you know, I, I could talk about PAX a little bit. I think. I've been to Gen Con and I've been to PAX Unplugged. Those are the two board game conventions that I've been to. Obviously, I went to E3 for about eight years. Um, but I think PAX Unplugged is... Uh, I prefer PAX Unplugged to Gen Con. Maybe I talked about this last year, but uh, it holds true again this year. It is smaller, it's more intimate, more manageable. Um, and I think it's focused more on people getting together and playing, which is, I think, what I prefer in a, in a board game convention. And uh, so I did just that. I think it's, I think it's um, organized well. There's plenty of opportunity to just borrow games from PAX, the organization. Uh, they have a good system set up. They have a giant area in the main convention hall. So there's a big convention hall where the, at the Philadelphia Convention Center where the show has been for the first two years. And half of this room is all booths and half of it is all tables. And tables are where you get to play. Um, they have their own collection. You just check out games using your badge. And they also have the sort of hot games area. It's called the, the first look area. And those are most of the new games, typically at that time of year, the end of November. They've come to PAX from Essen, or they, you know, they were released around the time of Essen Spiele, and uh, they're available at PAX to play, which is great. Um, so, the games that I played, however, were not all first look games. They were not all from uh, Essen, and some were available in the booth area, and some were available in the uh, free play area. So, I'll just start with my little list here. Um, one game that I did get to play that I was really excited to get to play was Arkham Horror 3. So this one has been pretty well hyped. Everyone's been talking about it. It's supposed to be a fantastic addition to the Arkham Files collection of games from Fantasy Flight. And I think it is a solid game. Um, so. It's sort of a blend of a few of the different styles of games that we found in the Arkham Files. And part of it, there's a, there's a card-based objective system that I think is my favorite portion of the game, my favorite takeaway. Um, it has a sort of branching storyline. It's very simple, it's a simple storyline, but um, you'll have objectives as you play the game. and when you complete an objective or when something in the game happens and triggers the non-completion half of the objective card, you'll read what it says. It'll generally say, go use this, uh, find this other card and lay it out. And now this is a new card that's in play and there will be some story bits on that too. Um, so that's really cool. It's a lot like the, the Fallout game, which I played recently as well. The game itself, however, is not a, it's not a card game like uh, Arkham Horror the card game. This is a board game, and it's a modular board that works a lot like a board game version of the Arkham Horror LCG, in that there are a few areas that, um, they're, they're like small, maybe like six, seven, eight inch uh, diameter spaces, like cardboard areas, that will denote a different neighborhood of Arkham. And then you connect them together with straight pieces, straight streets, which are like puzzle pieces, to other areas. And you make this modular map out of however the, the scenario says to set it up. 
and that's really cool. Um, and on your turn, you'll be in, you'll be moving from area to area, maybe engaging in combat with an enemy that's there. There are no miniatures in this one. They're all represented by small size cards that get laid out in the areas. Um, you might try to collect clues. You might just try to interact with the area, the, the central portion of the, uh, of the board that you're on. And each one of those will show you what sort of a benefit you're most likely to get or what sort of an interaction you're most likely to have. Like, for example, if you go to the convenience store, there are icons on the board that, say, that show give money, get items, or, or something like that. On other ones, it might show that you receive something else at, at the most frequently. So you move around the board, and then you, you make these interactions, and then there's a sort of like mythos-type phase where you're drawing chits from a bag, and those are populated based on the scenario. And uh, whatever you draw, you'll draw two of these, and a different thing will happen based on each of these chits, and each player draws their own pair of these chits. And I have mixed feelings about this portion of the game, because I do think that it is not very smooth. Um, you're drawing, everyone draws them out, then each person has to do their one chit, then their next one, and like a chit might say, okay, you got this one, now you get look at this card, now you, okay, now you grab this one, now you do, you take this card and you shuffle it into the top few cards on this deck, and there's a lot of this like sort of like fiddly shuffling back cards back into decks, looking at different cards. Um, compared to the mythos phase of something like Eldritch Horror, which I adore, uh, that, that game was more simple. The, the cards, you do all the preparation at the beginning of the game, and then just flip a card, and that's it. Um, this one, Arkham Horror, the you know, third edition, it allows the game to scale a little bit more precisely, I would think, because you're drawing those chits based on number of players, because each player gets their own pair of chits. Um, but uh, I think I do prefer the old Mythos phase from Eldritch Horror. I, I haven't played Arkham Horror enough to really compare the two directly, Arkham Horror 2nd Edition. I haven't played that one enough to say really how I feel about anything there. But Eldritch Horror I'm, I'm very familiar with, so that, that's where a lot of my Arkham Files comparison will come from. Um, so combat's a little bit different in this case, in that you'll perform combat. Um, so I'm used to, in previous games, you do all your moves, you do your actions, and then after everyone's done that, there's an encounter phase where you have all your encounters, and uh, it's very organized, it's very regimented in that way. In this game, there's, there is some of that organization to the play, but when it comes to encounters, there's more of a, um, an adventure card game style system where the enemy cards will attach themselves to a player when encountered, and then players will do their portion of the combat on their turn, and then the monsters will do their portion later. And in the interim, other players can engage that same monster and take the card away from a, the player who it's currently attached to. And that is, I think it's a good thing in terms of uh, strategic competition, you know, trying to win the game and cooperate with your friends to succeed. But again, it's another bit of the game that is less streamlined and less straightforward. So the scenarios, I only got to play one scenario, and as I understand, they can be different from one another. Uh, the one that we played was, it was very curious uh, in that there were, I think they were Eldritch tokens, or maybe they called them Doom tokens. I, I'm not sure exactly what they were called, but there were tokens that were being spawned out onto the board in various areas, on, into, the, into the different locations of this modular map. And part of the scenario 
was running around and managing these, like getting them collected off the board and placed onto the scenario card to advance in, in a positive way. And the negative aspect of the game was if these built up too much, then that would trigger the bad result on the first card. And it had sort of a pandemic feeling, which I think is going to appeal to a lot of people. And I think that helps the game in terms of its popularity and familiarity in, in mechanism. Um, I also don't know if this is a common thread throughout all the scenarios, but in the one that I did play, that's how it worked. Um, but as for me, feeling like the game was a little bit more similar to Pandemic in that way. And this is a pretty loose similarity. Um, it's just a vibe that you get from the game, the way that things are building up and you're running around managing it and, and squashing what the game is throwing at you in a, in a more slow and methodical way, as opposed to the ways that it happens in, in Eldritch Horror, which still has a little bit of that feeling. This one felt a little bit less grand. Uh, it was a little bit more micromanagement of these things. So for me, that wasn't my favorite thing about it. And actually, I came away from the table thinking, oh, when I sat down, I was so excited and I was saying I should, this is a game that I want to buy. And when I got up, I was like, hmm, I think I'm fine with Eldritch Horror and its expansions. So not to take too much away from the game, but for me, it was not enough to, um, to pique my interest beyond what I have in Eldritch Horror and uh, also Mansions of Madness 2nd Edition, which is perhaps my number one game at the moment. Um, okay, so continuing on, another new one that I got to sit down and play was from Days of Wonder. It was their sort of one game that they release each year. This one is The River, and it's a worker placement game where you're trying to gather a few different resources. There's wood and bricks and stone. Pretty straightforward in that sense, but it has some interesting mechanics. So one of the main things you're also getting are landscape slash like building sort of tiles that are laid along the river, which is a meandering pattern, sort of snaking on your own player board with square spaces that you'll be placing each of these building or, or landscape tiles on as you go, as you acquire them. And they have to be placed in order from the starting point to the end as you purchase them, um, as you acquire them. And each one gives you either an ability or a way to store some of your goods or a sort of production increase in one of the different or multiple of the different types of resources. Um, then each tile has a, a landscape tile. That's why I keep calling it landscape tiles. I don't know what they're called exactly, but they might be a plains tile or a forest tile or a mountain tile. So in addition to scoring by, I guess these other cards are building cards, in addition to scoring by, by building these cards that come up that require a certain number of resources to build, um, you also score points based on how you've built out your tableau, which is what this snaking river becomes essentially. And if you match up certain types of landscapes in each column of your player board, you can earn points that way too. And of course you can get tiles that'll say, oh, score a point for every one of your forest tiles, or score a point for every one of your mountain tiles or plain tiles, whatever. Um, so there are a number of different ways to score, but the primary thing is you're racing to complete those building cards. And it's a worker placement game. Players will go to each of the spaces on the main board that allow you to produce stone, or produce bricks, or produce wood. And when you go to those, you refer to your own player board and you count up the number of areas that you have that show production for wood. And then based on that, you collect it and you have to hold it on your player board in areas that are designated to hold goods. And there's a management aspect there because you, you don't want to 
produce stuff that you can't hold because that's inefficient and um, you're going to want to convert some of your goods into turkeys which are wild and they can help you in getting those building cards done um, so it's a it's a really straightforward game um, it's simple it's it's a light middleweight game i'd say and i found it to be a good interesting puzzle it's nothing that's going to really i mean it's, it didn't blow me away but i thought it was fun and interesting so the river i look forward to playing again i would definitely play it again and, and want to and uh, I would recommend checking it out. Um, I don't think it's as great from my initial play as something like Five Tribes or Quadropolis, some of the heavy hitters, but um, you know, still a solid Days of Wonder game. So another one I played is also sort of based around a body of water. It's about the fishing village of Nusfjord, and it's by Uwe Rosenberg. This one is not quite as new. I mean, it's still one of his more recent games, but it's not brand new. Um, it's also a worker placement game, and I think it's on the lighter end for Uwe. I had heard prior to playing this game that there was an aspect of the game that a lot of people didn't like, or I guess some vocal people didn't like, and that was that a group of cards that comes out later in the game comes out too late because these are mostly your scoring cards. And it's nice to be able to prepare in advance with the knowledge of what's going to score you points. And people felt that these came out too late and the game was a little bit too luck dependent because a card could come out that aligns with what you've been doing, but a card could also come out that is basically useless. So what we did was have those cards come out uh, around earlier to try to avoid that sort of situation. And it seemed to work very well, worked smoothly. Um, okay, so looking at Nusfjord, you've got a board, a player board, where you have your own little area where you can build buildings in spaces that look a lot like Glass Road. You've got these double-length forest tiles that you can clear out and make space for buildings, but if you have empty space, you're going to lose points. And then there are cards that come out onto the main board that you can purchase and those will go into your player area and give you either immediate benefits or passive abilities or active abilities that you'll benefit from throughout the game every time you do a particular action or something happens that triggers the, the ability that the thing gives you. You know, it might give you a discount on building new buildings, it might give you a discount on building boats, which is important. And speaking of boats, you have a row at the bottom of your board made up of a number of fishing boats of three different sizes, each of which is more difficult to acquire than the previous one. And based on how much space you've taken up on this boat track at the bottom, you will acquire groups of fish at the beginning of each round because that's basically the point. You have a fishing business and there's this really fiddly section at the beginning of each round, which I'm not a fan of, but it, it's simpler than it sounds, but when you're going through it, it's like, okay, this is a little annoying. You collect your number of fish, and then a certain number of fish go to your elders, which is another group of cards that goes to the top of your board that you have to acquire so that you have additional benefits and you can activate these people later to to capitalize on what they help you do but you have to feed them each round and that's why a fish goes to them then a fish goes to shares in your company because part of the game is selling shares to the general supply from which your opponents can then purchase those shares and then each round when you get a fit a group of fish one of those fish is going to go to either the share that's on the main board, which just goes back to the supply, or to another player who has purchased your share. And you can, this buying and selling of shares is good because you can make money by selling the share and then you can buy the share back and you'll end up ahead of the game in terms of economics uh, if you time it out right and no one beats you to it. So that's good, but like the whole system 
makes the the beginning phase a little bit fiddly and realistically i don't think that it adds that much to the game to have th these shares so whatever but otherwise it's a fairly straightforward worker placement game there's a main board you have a few workers that you're able to place out each round there are spaces that are blocked off immediately by one worker and spaces that can house two workers or three workers and you're just going to be going through the game you're going to be fishing those fish at the beginning of the rounds you're going to be getting wood and resources money um, you're going to be building buildings which are these cards that come out into a grid that you have freedom to peruse and and uh, plan for if you build a building put it in your area benefit from it you can hire these or not hire but acquire these elders to your area that's another space on the main board when you go there you get the elder then you could also use those elders on your player board as another worker placement spot and they give you the ability to do new actions later on you get more powerful buildings in the b deck and then later on you get the those scoring buildings in the c deck and you kind of plan it out to capitalize on what the c buildings ask for so outside of that sort of fiddly mechanic it's it's very familiar um, but i almost feel like it should have just been familiar like it's a game that we've kind of seen a lot of the premises for already and the addition of the the fishing and stocks and shares and stuff that kind of like made it weird and made it its own thing but also didn't really improve upon it so this is this is a fine game i would play it again but i would not i wouldn't really like ask to play it so that's newsfjord not bad but you know not my favorite uh, moving on so i didn't only play worker placement games that occur along a body of water i also played an abstract which is not really my go-to genre or style of game but um, I've been very interested in trying out TAC so I did I played TAC at the greater than games booth and it's really cool I think it's a solid game I don't know if it if it would hold up for me over the long term or if it would be something I could really get into, that remains to be seen. I picked up a copy for myself, and uh, I intend to get it to the table a bit more. Hopefully over this holiday break I have, it'll be great. Um, but Tack, I mean, it's super cool. The idea, All the concepts are super cool. So it plays on a board that is a grid, and the board that comes with the game, you can you can really make a Tack board. You can make a whole Tack set if you want, but I got the the production copy and the board that I got is double-sided and on one side it has a sort of wood look wood illustration uh, grid and on the other side it has one that is a little bit more easy to resize the game that you're playing you can play a 3 by 3 grid a 4 by 4 grid 5 by 5 and I think 6 by 6 and the way that it's done is it has squares but then it has little diamonds at every intersection of the squares, so you can play either on the spaces or the intersections. So as you expand out, the game becomes bigger and I guess more complex. Um, it also has illustration on the board to help denote what game you're playing, like the inner three, the inner grid of nine squares is clear, and then the outer portion has like a floral pattern on it it's a really nice looking board and then it's got beautiful wooden pieces either these semicircles or these trapezoidal pieces in uh, brown and white so the game the goal of the game is to build a bridge from one side of the board across to the opposite side of the board and it doesn't have to be in a straight line it could meander its way around the board to get to the other side so long as these are not adjacent sides these are opposite sides but getting there you it has to be an unbroken line so if i'm playing brown and a white player ends up putting their white piece on top of my brown piece then that's no longer a valid bridge so the way that you play the game is on your turn you can place one of your pieces out onto the board on a space flat 
and you can place it on the board level. Later on, you'll have stacks of tiles, but you can't place directly on top of any other pieces. So another thing you can do is move your single piece that's on the board to an adjacent space, and it goes on top of whatever was already there. So in this game, you can end up with stacks of pieces, and they can be both players' colors all mixed in there. And they're going to be, because you're going to be taking control of these stacks from one another by doing this move of put, having a piece on the board and moving it one orthogonal space on top of a stack. Because whoever has their piece on the top of the stack controls the stack. Only that person's allowed to move it. And that's the third move, is you can take an entire stack and move it as far as you want in a straight line so long as you are dropping off pieces in each space that you cross. So you can have a stack built that you, know, you and your opponent have, have managed to stack up, and then you can take it and drop off pieces in a straight line so that you've now created a line of your colored pieces because you don't have to drop off each one. Say, say I'm, I'm the brown player. If there's a white piece on the bottom, I can take this whole stack and I can move it and I'll drop off that bottom white piece and one of my brown pieces that was on top of it already. So that's a stack of, of white with brown on top. And then maybe the next piece in the stack was brown. So I drop it off alone. So now brown's on top there. Maybe the next one was brown. So I drop it off alone. And then maybe the next one was white, but the top one was brown. So I drop those two off together. And now I've put all browns on top of all these squares in a row, which is fantastic for me, terrible for my opponent. This is what the game demonstrator did to me multiple times. And it was terrible. Uh, she was very good and beat everybody. I guess you get better with practice <laughs> playing tag. Now there are other ways to put pieces down. This is the simple game. But you can also play the more advanced game, which includes putting your pieces down vertically, like standing on their side. And these are walls. I forget if that's what they're called, but I'm calling them walls. And what these do is they, A, they block bridges, and B, you cannot stack on top of these things. So what do you do then? There's a third piece in the game that's sort of like a capstone that moves similarly to the other pieces and can stomp those wall pieces down flat again. So that's cool. So that adds a whole new element to the game. And I didn't get to play with those pieces, unfortunately, but I plan to. But um, so far, TAC is super intriguing. Uh, I really want to play it. I'm going to try to get some plays in ASAP. But initial impressions, very positive very exciting. Alright, so another game I played was a little bit, it's another sort of abstract-ish game, but it's a card game. Um, it's been around for a long time, but Renegade Games has a new printing of it. It's called Arboretum. Now this is a cool hand management game, a tableau builder, you could call it, where you've got seven cards in your hand. On each turn, you pick up two cards from a central draw pile or one of a number of discard piles, one for each player. You have a bunch of options of cards you want to take, obviously. Um, so you're drawing two of those into your hand, you got nine cards in your hand, and now you got to put one down. You put one down in front of you, it stays there forever. Later on, on your next turn, you put one orthogonally adjacent to it. And why? What are you doing? So the game has ten suits in a four-player game, and then you reduce it down to eight and six, I believe, for a three and two player game, of trees, different trees. And each of these suits has eight cards in the deck, numbered one through eight. What you're trying to do is build runs of cards from low to high that begin and end with one type of tree, one suit of tree. Now, you don't have to have them all be the same kind of tree. So I could have a dogwood tree with a number two on it, then an evergreen tree with a number three, then a maple tree with a number four, 
and a jacaranda tree with the number six, and then a dogwood tree again, which was the first card that I said I put down of a number seven, and all of those cards count. They all count for this run, and you get a point at the end of the game for each of these cards. If you get a point for each of these cards, if you have the most of that card in your hand, and that's the highest number value of card in your hand. So not only are you trying to play out these cards on the board, but you're also trying to withhold a bunch of them so that you can make sure that you have earned the right to score that tree. So the scoring is really weird at the end and, and kind of like hard to wrap your head around at first for a lot of people, but the game is a sweet little brain burner. Uh, I thought it was a lot of fun. You also get extra points for playing the one card or the eight card because obviously eight is a very high value, so a lot of people are going to want to hold on to that so they have the right to score. So you get two extra points just for playing the eight. But if you have the one card in your hand and someone else has the eight, you just made their eight worth zero and you still have one. So you want to hold on to that. So the one card is also worth an extra additional point if it's played on the tableau. And then since you're trying to withhold all these cards so that you have the opportunity to score, you're also getting bonuses by playing a group of the same color card. So remember before I said that the whole run of cards does not have to be the same kind of tree. It just has to start and end with the same kind of tree. But if you make a run of four of the same kind of tree, that whole run will double in value. And now these, I keep saying a run because they're not in a row or a column. They can have turns in them, like kind of like boggle. You know, you can have your one, and then to the right of that, the two, and then below that, the three, and then to the left of that, the four. So it can snake its way around orthogonally. But you can't place diagonally, and you can't score diagonally. So this is a really cool game, and throughout the game, the, the prevailing feeling was, oh, I have to keep all these. Oh, but I, I really want to get these played. Oh, I don't want to discard that because my opponent's going to get it because at the end of your turn you picked up two cards at the beginning of your turn right so you're going to play one onto your tableau and you discard one which i failed to mention earlier and then the next player in sequence has the opportunity to pick that one up or any of the other discard piles so not only are you playing for yourself but you're also playing by watching your opponent's tableaus trying to hold on to high valued cards that they have so they don't score and also trying not to discard cards that the player to your left and beyond will really benefit from. So it's a super brain burnery little card game and I really enjoy it. I've played it so far with four and three and I hear it's really good at two so I'm gonna definitely get that played as well but um, really excited about this one definitely positive vibes coming off of Arboretum and uh, I would recommend checking that one out if you can. Super cheap game, just a little card game and without the box that's way too big for it you could just throw this in your pocket even. Big potential out of a small game there. Moving on. Okay, we're going to talk about what could be my game of the show. This is a Steffenfeld game and it is called Forum Trajanum. Whew! This feels like Stefan Feld getting back to what made me fall in love with older Stefan Feld games. This is a big, heavy game, a lot of intertwining mechanisms, a lot of interesting scoring, and just really fun to play. And probably really hard to describe now that I'm thinking about it. Okay, so in this game, you're trying to score points. There are going to be three ages that you go through, and in each age, there are going to be a number of rounds based on these decks of cards. And what these decks of cards do, they're shuffled up and they randomly tell you where on your player board you're going to start. And by start, I mean this. You have a player board that's a grid, and this grid is populated by these little uh, citizen tiles and they're all face down. 
and on the other side of them they have actions or, or benefits that you get when you use them. So what those cards and those decks do is they show you which row or column on your grid you are allowed to pull one of these citizens from. So this is a randomizer because you can't see what's on the other side of these tiles. But there's mitigation as in any good Stefan Feld game. You pick up two of them, right? And what you're gonna do is you're gonna hold one for yourself and you're gonna pass one to the player to your right or left. It's one of those two. And it's always the same throughout the whole game, which I didn't think was great, but kinda has to be in order to make it work. And I'll tell you why in a little bit. But, um, so now you've passed one and kept one, and the, the opponent on your left passes you one. Now you have these two, and you get to choose which one you want to use. Alright, so you've got a level of choice with the two that you've chosen, and a level of choice with the two that you've been given. And you can use them for a number of things. You can lay certain types down on the left side of your little player board, that will enhance your abilities on your own player board when taking actions in that row or when scoring that row. And then you have other ones which let you acquire either money or different types of workers or let you bump up on your little scoring multiplier thingamajobber at the top. And you have a lot of this choice here that you have to decide. So I mentioned little workers and that is the next phase of the game is you get to build buildings on your tableau and you can only put these buildings down they're either a square or a rectangle which is two adjacent squares you can build these little buildings on the spaces that you have previously vacated by selecting those citizens and the way that you build them is by paying a worker that is either gray and and can build these gray type buildings i forget what they're called or a colored worker which gives you the right to build a building matching their color and there are four colors and they each score differently and they each have other different benefits that you take later on by building them so when you build these gray buildings they're gonna help you score the rows of your tableau. When you build the red, green, blue, and yellow buildings, they're gonna let you place one of your people in your little citizen tiles from when you used them earlier, and you're gonna place them out on this central area, which is comprised of a number of squares of different colors that are, are organized into areas, and this is modular, so they're like four rectangular pieces with a variety of different colored squares on them that you arrange in the center of this board differently at the beginning of each game and differently based on player count. So they're going to line up differently every game and they're going to make each game play differently. And what you're trying to do is surround these special eagle squares that will give you points later on for being adjacent to them and you're going to want to create continuous chains of your people to score points and you're going to want to fill up colored areas so that you can gain benefits from doing that and then there are these other tracks surrounding those areas that correlate to the different colors that you're going to go up and gain other benefits and that's going to help you score points in other ways and <laughs> I'm sure that made no sense. Honestly, I'm going to have to do a video review of this. But suffice it to say that the game is really good. And an interesting thing about it is as you play, you're pulling your citizens off of your main area, right? So now you have fewer and fewer options for when these new cards come up and say, oh, you can only draw from column number one or row number three. It's like, well, wait, I don't really have stuff there. But I'm also trying to create space in particular areas so that I can build buildings how I want to build them. Because on top of all this, 
there are these goal cards that come out each of these three eras that ask for players to build buildings in a particular orientation, like maybe a colored building above a gray building above a colored building, or three in a row or, or whatever, but there's a spatial aspect to it. So you're trying to achieve that by clearing space and building the right kind of buildings as time goes on so that at the end of these eras you're gonna be able to say yeah I did that I'm gonna score points because that's important or you might want to be holding a certain number of coins or workers in your area at the end of each of these three eras because that can score you points and then the little scoring multiplier thingamajobber that I mentioned earlier that has a bearing on all this as well because every time you bump that up, it's gonna increase your scoring for those things that I just mentioned, like the buildings and the, the goal cards and what have you. And also, in a different way, it's gonna increase your scoring for your chains of citizens that you've placed out in the central board area. So there's so much going on here. And at first, I honestly wasn't really super enthralled by it. Just looking at it, I was like, this doesn't really look interesting. It looks dry. But in playing it, it was super engaging and really allowed my brain to sort of exercise its ability to understand the interplay of, of numerous mechanisms that seem to interplay really well. This game is a hundred percent must-have for me. I'm gonna get Forum Trajana, um, one of my, one of the best games of the show. So that one, solid, solid recommendation. I, I look forward to playing it more, and I suggest if you are a Euro gamer, you play it. Period. Full stop. Moving on. Okay, another one that I thought was great, Endeavor: Age of Sail. It's a new edition of Endeavor and I played a three-player game, and it was super good. Wow. I don't know who designed Endeavor, but um, it felt a little bit like a Martin Wallace game, but it was super elegant, it was really interesting, and I definitely want to have this game. So, um, on your player board, you have a number of tracks that run horizontally left to right and based on your position on these you're gonna gain benefits each round like you're gonna have the ability to build to a certain level and that's dictated by one track you're gonna get a number of workers based on another track you're gonna be able to pay workers because uh, one of them's a money track and um, I forget the last one I think it's four but the point is there's a number of these tracks and you're trying to bump these up throughout the game to help you perform better. And then below that, each round of the game, you're gonna build one building. And each of these buildings becomes an available space that you can use in subsequent rounds. And each of them gives you the ability to do something, like perform an action, like colonize an area, like perform a war action, like increase your abilities on one of the tracks, etc. So the buildings are important. They also might give you the option to do one action or another, or two of an action or something. So it's cool that you're building these buildings and they help you do things. I like that in general. Then below that, you're going to place certain cards that you acquire by performing actions in areas of the map that you have presence in, and like a certain value of occupation in. And the map itself is Europe and surrounding colonial type areas like other parts of the world and you start off restricted to being in Europe and there's a, an area control aspect of, of this so by doing the colony action you're placing one of your discs out onto the board and you now own that spot and you're gonna get maybe victory points for it, but you're definitely going to get the little chit that was there that gives you a bump up on one of the tracks that help you perform better later in the game. So as you're taking 
spaces out on the board, it's becoming full, now you have presence in that area, that helps you take other actions that can get you those cards, and then it also opens up routes to travel into new areas. Um, then each of these other areas, they are closed at the beginning, but each one has a sort of shipping lane track that needs to be filled up before it opens, so players will place their discs out on this track, it's usually like four or five spaces, and one, and they're getting benefits throughout, because every time you place on one of these little circles, you're getting something. And then when you fill that up, there's a little bit of a majority control aspect there where you're gaining a benefit if you had the most discs in opening up that new shipping lane. But then that whole area becomes open and you can now place in there and there are different locations that you can put your discs in to score more points, to get more of that majority, to earn more of those cards. And if you haven't been placing on that shipping lane, you have other areas in those newly opened up locations where you can still go if you place on like the one ship that is on the map that is essentially saying, oh, well, I took the opportunity to ship to this area. And that's a way you can gain presence in an area. And the presence is important because it helps you earn those cards with their benefits later, and it helps you expand and, and be in the different places that have points available to them because there's a route building aspect of the game as well. So if you have your discs on certain spaces, they might earn points for those spaces. But if you have connected spaces, then the links between spaces can earn you a point as well. So there's a lot of that going on because another action is conquering or, or replacing your opponent's discs with your own. You take this war action represented by a cannon and you discard your opponent's disc back to their supply. You discard one of your own discs and you place out one of your other discs where theirs previously was. So you have to take a little bit of a loss, but you take over that area. So in that way, if you're playing aggressively like that, you're going to have to make sure that you have increased your number of discs coming in by bumping up that track. So there's always this sort of like engine building aspect to the game, as well as the area control and the route building and the player versus player interaction. And the game is on a strict timer. It ends after the six or seven, I think seven rounds. And you're building one building each round. It's very straightforward. The buildings get better and better as you increase that track up into the different tiers of buildings. And then the game ends. You score the points for your cards that you've acquired, for the points that you've earned on the board, for the distance you've traveled on each of those tracks, they're going to score based on that. And for other things, you can gain positive or negative points. There are governor cards for the different areas, which um, I forget exactly how they work, but if, if you are, the, I think, the majority shipper into that area, you can take that and you get a big benefit for it. But if you get another one, you're going to lose points or something. You can only have so many cards in that area at the bottom of your board that are going to give you benefits. And if you have to lose cards, then any increase they've given you on any of those tracks at the top of your player board, those are going to be reduced by whatever it says on the card. So that's going to affect you at the end of the game. Um, you can also take slave cards, which I didn't do. Just A, I didn't really find it necessary. B, didn't want to get in the slave game. Uh, yeah, but you can only have so many of those, and also slavery can be completely abolished in the game, so if that happens, you lose all those slave cards and the benefits that they've been providing you, which is really cool. Like, thinking about pushing to abolish slavery, and not only are you doing the right thing and being like on the right side of history, but you're also negatively impacting your opponents who are relying on that for the success of their economical empire. Really cool, and there's like a whole paragraph about 
the incorporation of slavery in the game for anyone who is concerned about that subject matter. It's addressed and intentional. And on top of all this, it has been redesigned from the original to be more scalable in that it has a side of the board for three and four players or four and five players and a side of the board for two and three players that you could still play four player on if you're psychopathic or just really aggressive or just find it more fun to play on smaller boards with a lot of players, it's fine. It doesn't mean you're psycho. Uh, I'm just a little bit more of a uh, loosey-goosey, live-and-let-live kind of guy. But anyway, that's really cool that it scales. So Endeavor Age of Sail, 100%, I want to get this game. And uh, hopefully I'll, I'll get my hands on it and get to review that one. But I would definitely throw that on the you-should-check-it-out list. Okay, so uh, I played a couple of roll-and-write games at the free play area. And these were Welcome To. I'll start. Okay, so one is Welcome To. Um, so Welcome To is an interesting sort of roll-and-write because it's not a roll-and-write. It's a flip-some-cards-and-write game. You've got three rows of houses, like three streets, and your goal is to give them all a house number um, in order from left to right, from low to high. And the cards that flip up, there are three decks, and there are going to be cards that flip up with the number 1 through 15, I believe. And what you're trying to do is when those cards get flipped over, you're choosing one of the three to write on your board. But the interesting thing about it is that each one, when flipped, on the back of it has a special attribute. So there might be a fence, which in addition to putting in the number of a house, you also draw in one fence that separates a house from the house next to it. And what those do is it makes blocks of houses of varying lengths. And um, that's going to be important because you're going to score points for each different size estate, is what they're called. And you're going to be able to affect how much you're going to score for each one of those. And then additionally, there are going to be some general goal cards for everyone that might include, hey, have estates of size 2, 3, and 4, or have estates of size whatever. So there are things that you're going to be trying to achieve by doing fencing. Then there's pools. Some of them you're going to fill in the pool on a house with a pool. Some of the houses on each street have an illustration of a pool. Some of them don't. So if you take a number with a pool, you have to write it in a house with a pool, but you also circle that pool and you're going to score points based on how many of those you have. And that could be a goal at the end of the game, is to fill in all the pools on the street. Then there's one special attribute that lets you fill in a box underneath one of the estate sizes and improve the number of points you're going to score for that. That's what I just mentioned. Then there's the ability to put in a house with the same number as the house next to it, because normally you, can, you only have them in a row. This one lets you break that rule. You get a little ding against you that you, maybe you don't want so many of by the end of the game because you're going to lose points but it lets you fit in more numbers in your row because the more that you have filled in, the, the better you're going to do. Um, then there are parks. Parks are very simple. You put in the number anywhere, and then you're going to fill in a box at the end of that street that you put that park on, that you put that house on, and the more parks you have on a street, the more you score. And that could be one of those goals at the end of the game, too just have, have all the parks on this street or have this many parks done. Then there's an option to not put in a house and instead you build a roundabout and that resets your numbering system. So if you screw up and you put like 1, 2, 5, 15 and then the rest of your, the rest of your row is worthless, you put in a, a roundabout and now you could start at 1 again. And may, I mean, you're not going to screw up like that, but there are points where you might find it useful to um, put in a roundabout and restart your count. So that's how Welcome 2 works. You just play through the, the whole deck, the whole game, 
and uh, and tally up your points. So it was, it was pretty cool. It was fine. You know, I would play it again. That's a nice filler, and it's a little bit more interesting than some of the other roll and rights that I've played. Um, a lot of people are super into roll and rights right now. I'm not, but this one was fine, and Railroad Inc. was fine also. Railroad Inc. is a grid where you're trying to connect inlets and outlets of railroads and highways based on dice that are rolled each round. You basically roll the dice in a round, you see what die face has come up, and you copy that onto one of the little squares on your grid, and you are trying to make a continuous route of rails and highways from one point, one inlet to one outlet on your board, and fill in spaces in the middle to gain points, and uh, just make sure you don't have dead ends, basically. And then you have the opportunity to use some special die faces that are not actually on the dice, but they're printed on the top of your sheet, and those will help you be a little bit more successful in creating a better rail and highway map. And at the end of the game, you score based on the length of your highway, the length of your rail, how many of the boxes in the middle of the grid you filled in, how many different entry points to the paper you have connected in a single network, etc. So that was cool. It was fun. It was nice and light and easy. But again, like I'm not a super roll and write fan, but it's one that like if you are really into roll and writes, it's a it's a good one. It's one of the better ones. Both of these, Welcome to and uh, Railroad Inc. are both uh, better roll and writes that I've played. So that's those. And I think my last one is uh, that I'm going to talk about is Too Many Bones, which I'd seen kind of a long time ago. I think. Definitely at PAX, but also I think at Gen Con 2017. Um, but I, I just had no interest in it. It was weird. Like, I, I saw it, and there were some neoprene mats, and people had dice, and they put them into spots on their area, and it just didn't really look that interesting to me. But I sat down, and I tried it out, and it was super cool. So it's basically like a, I don't want to say, I don't want to say like a dungeon crawl. It's basically just like a series of little combats and you're improving your character by acquiring new dice. And each of these dice is a, like a custom die that is meant to go on a specific ability. Like it, it the die is the ability and it goes on your character mat, which is neoprene, and it slots right into a specific spot. And you can only place it along a certain path of spots on your board. And um, when you go into combat, you choose the dice that you're going to bring into combat that you're allowed up to a certain number. And you're going to go through a round of sort of tactical competition, rolling your your hits and your defenses and taking down opponents that are represented by chips, poker chips. This is Chip Theory Games and named for these cool poker chips that are in a lot of their games and in this case represent your character as well as all the enemies and are kind of a health counter. As you do damage, you knock a chip off the bottom of the stack and that's how you take down their hit points and it's fun it's interesting the the dice the custom dice and the custom abilities are cool when you level up you can either add to your attack dice or your defense dice or you can add an ability die um, it, it was really interesting uh, I, re I wanted to play more but I didn't have time I, I sat down at like I don't know 540 <laughs> and the show floor closed at 6 o'clock, so we just really ran through it fast. But it is something I definitely want to try again, and I would recommend checking it out. So that one's pretty cool looking. Especially, like, if you're just into, like, fun Ameritrash dice combat, just rock some Chip Theory uh, Too Many Bones action. Do that. That kind of wraps it up. I played some other stuff, but... 
either I don't remember it very well or I just don't really have much to say about it or didn't care enough. But uh, that was that was my PAX. It was fun. I uh, I had a lot of fun. Ate a lot of good food. Enjoyed the atmosphere. Enjoyed hanging out with friends. Enjoyed playing these games. Um, and you know I, I I enjoy playing the games that I really like, and I appreciate playing the games that I don't really like, just because it gives me some insight as to whether I want to pick that game up or not. So overall, I felt like it was a really great time. It was fun, it was productive, I played some fantastic games, I got some games off my mind because I wasn't interested in them after playing them, and it gave me a lot to talk about on a podcast, so thanks for listening, as usual. Anyway, that's going to wrap it up. I'm Eddie Inzotto. Thanks again for listening. Um, Check out our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Gamernode. Head over to our Instagram, at Gamernode, Twitter, at Gamernode, Facebook.com slash Gamernode, and and Gamernode.com, the website. I'm going to get out of here. Until next time, as usual, you guys have fun out there.